I don't ever want to leave somebody in the valley. Um, I want to bring people out of the valley. So um, a couple things that we've created for the nonprofit, one of them is called a seven days of hope challenge. It is stories from trauma survivors. Okay. Um, but it not only gives their personal story, it's really a testimonial of how they got through it. Okay. So how they went from, you know, being a victim to a victor in that situation. Welcome to the Share Your Story podcast with your host, Megan McGowan, and her guests as they share real, raw, inspiring stories of how they have overcome adversity and the lessons they've learned along the way. Megan's mission is to change perspectives, offer hope, and create connections with her audience to make the world we live in a more connected place. All right, let's dive into this episode. I am so excited for you to meet my next guest. Her name is Ray Alina. She is a phenomenal woman that I have looked up to for many, many years. Um, her story is so inspiring. Um, she is an author, a speaker. I cannot wait until she tells you more about um, Be a Worthy Girl. Um, and she talks about her struggles with addiction and how she's overcome them. And you're just going to love her as much as I do. So Raylina, thank you for being on, um, like the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's just start off the bat. If you were to go back in time and talk to your 12 year old self, what would you say to her? Oh, goodness. I love this question because I honestly have thought about it before. So, um, you know, that's sometimes my motivation. I would tell the 12 year old me um, that you don't have to search for your worth outside of yourself. You know, you, you don't need to, you don't need to, you know, seek approval from other people, right? Um, really, I believe that there's this God-sized hole that was inside of me that I think is inside of most people. And until you find that relationship, um, you look for that completion of yourself in all these other places, right? And I've just come to believe that, you know, the only person that can fulfill that is the person who created me because he understands me above all else. Right. And so, you know, a lot of the motivation behind the you know, be a worthy girl nonprofit, um, you know, that I started had to do with, you know, wanting people to see that they don't need that external validation, um, that they can actually find that within themselves and their spirituality and their, their relationship with God. So, um, yeah, I think I would love to save myself a lot of pain and suffering. <laughs> and so because I couldn't, I want to do that for other people. Yeah. Um, I love Be a Worthy Girl. Um, I, I think it's phenomenal. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is, what its mission is? Yeah, um, I would love to. I would love to. So we're, it's actually the nonprofit itself is called Worthy Girl. And then our kind of tagline is Be a Worthy Girl, right? Because it's this idea of um, becoming, you know, becoming kind of like the person that you already are that God designed you to be right and so 
We have a boutique um, as well. That's a part of it. But the whole mission behind the brand is to give tools and resources to trauma survivors um, to help with their, their journey of healing and to also raise awareness of the connection between um, trauma survivors and trafficking, because there is a lot of research that points to the fact that over 85% of uh trafficking victims have a history with sexual trauma. Um, and a lot of trafficking happens through coercion, which is really kind of like manipulation, you know, talking to people online, maybe sending, you know, inappropriate photos that they get leverage on you and then can coerce you into doing things um, to kind of like pay that off. That's like a huge tactic in it. And I really believe that that can happen you know, with people, women, people who are more vulnerable, um, that maybe don't have that, you know, confidence or belief, um, in, you know, both God and just within themselves that they, they don't see that value within them. The mission for that is so needed. Speak a little bit more about human trafficking because it is such a prevalent issue and a lot of people do not know that it's happening in their own backyard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was um, kind of naive and you might feel this way too. Like your idea of trafficking is like taken the movie where it's like, you know, it's in some other country and it's like this extreme situation. Um, and that can happen sadly, you know, but but the majority of what happens with sex trafficking is through what I was just explaining about coercion. So it's kind of like, um, you know, you might be talking to somebody online and the DMs and the chats, getting, you know, getting to know somebody. And, you know, typically it's somebody that's hurting, that they're like maybe going through something with depression, loneliness, anxiety, and this person comes in and befriends them, right? And you know, you're building this relationship, but this other person on the other hand, on the other end has a totally different agenda. And it turns into a, you know, manipulative situation that, you know, can be really, like I was explaining, like send me nude photos. And, you know, that turns into now do this for me and that for me. Right. And that's kind of, um, that's, that's a lot of what we see. And it happens with really, I mean, it could happen with children and really young preteens, definitely in that vulnerable age of like junior high age. Um, so I think one of the best things we could do for prevention is just being aware, at least for parents, like being aware of the control settings for your kids, you know, their social media conversations, um, you know, monitoring that and having conversations about this because it is really prevalent. And um, there's just so many stories of survivors that have shared, you know, their experiences. And, you know, a lot of the cycle of what happens, you know, it, it, it evolves, we call it prostitution, right, which is illegal. And so what happens is we're punishing, you know, women who are prostitutes, but really a large majority of them are in a trafficking cycle, right? And so the person, you know, the the John, the pimp, whatever you want to call, like they're not being punished for what they're doing. They're running their business and we're prosecuting the victim. So it's a huge problem. Um, you know, pornography is a huge problem that also goes into play with it because a lot of, um, 
you know, the people who are in pornography, it's, it's not necessarily at will. Um, so, you know, and pornography is so widely accepted, um, especially in us and it's so readily available through the internet that, um, it's almost like shoved down your throat. <laughs> so it's like, you can just get on there for free. Right. Um, but that is part of the industry of trafficking. I was just, so you brought up, you know, just how readily available it is and the almost movement right now is so sex positive, but with that, um, what do you feel about OnlyFans? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is definitely a, a dangerous, slippery slope also. Um, you know, I think, and I'll just speak to being a trauma survivor myself and, um, you know, at one of the lowest points in my life, you know, I was 21 years old. Um, I had moved out of state. I was living in Denver at the time and ended up losing my job and really needed money and was really struggling. And, and my roommate at the time said, well, I just got a job, you know, waitressing, doing cocktails, you know, at a strip club. So you should just come and do amateur night. All my buddies will be there, you know, and you'll just make quick $300 cash. And I was desperate. And I went, and then it went from that to like, oh, $300 cash to, you know, the owner bringing me back and saying, you know, here's a gift card, go spend it at this lingerie shop, come back and, you know, just, just try it out. Just, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And he's like, okay, we'll just think about it then, you know? And it was like in this desperation, but then I also had this uh, moment of feeling like empowered, right? Like it was almost like, oh, well, yeah, I should take money from these men like that are, you know, whatever. Like I had this it was almost like this anger towards men that it's like, yeah, come in and I'll take your money. Mm -hmm. And really not realizing at the time, just how degrading that was to me and how much that, you know, made me feel, um, you know, just terrible about myself and what I was doing. And I think, you know, fortunately for me, it was like a little trial that I went a couple times. I got really scared. A lot of my PTSD was triggered from being a trauma survivor. And I just like ran in the opposite direction. I'm very, very blessed to say that, you know, but that's not the case for most people. And so I think that just remembering myself in those shoes, it was like, I needed money. This was easy money. And there was this part of me that, that told myself that I was empowered. And it was this very like women's empowerment to be taking a man's money like that, right? Like that I was the one in control. And I think that that's what only fans, I, I really believe that's kind of maybe um, the motivation for a lot of women behind that. Whereas they're not even realizing um, the implications, the dangerous situation that they could be putting themselves into by doing that. I did not even know that aspect of your story that it, it, it feels like you were almost in a situation where you could have been trafficked. I was actually asked by, um, you know, a, a man, I remember one of the gentlemen <laughs> um, asking me, what is your dollar amount? You know, I, I had multiple offers like that and just being like, absolutely not. Like, yeah. like there was no part of me that was, I was like, there's no dollar amount for you. You know what I mean? But 
Yeah. But how many people in that situation would have been desperate enough to say, okay, let me really think about what would my dollar amount be? And that's really how it starts. And I can imagine that being in that environment over and over again, that temptation would definitely be there, you know? Um, So yeah, I, I really believe that I, you know, it's only by God's grace that I was saved from that being my story. I really, you know, can look back in my life um, and just see so many situations that I put myself in, um, a lot of it being under the influence of alcohol, which had a huge part to do with it. Um, and yeah, just, just a lot of my trauma kind of driving the bus of decisions that I made in my life. So even going back to, you said you're a survivor of, um, sexual trauma, and that is a topic that, I mean, we all know like one in four or one in three women, is that correct? I believe Um, it three yeah will you know be survivors and victims at a certain point and that's something that a lot of people hold in and they carry a lot of guilt and shame and um so many negative emotions about that they some of them will never speak about it um also referring to the me too movement when or how or why even did you decide to share that aspect of your story um and what do you think the effect that that's had on the people around you has been oh I'm so glad that you asked this and actually I'm really glad you brought up the me too movement okay because you know I I will be honest I haven't I have shared bits and pieces of my story but I've never just full out shared my story I I I've never, you know, named names of people. And that's really important to me, not only for my safety as a survivor and just, you know, just my own personal safety in that, like feeling like, you know, I don't want to do that, but also from the standpoint of, I don't want to cause harm to other people. Right. And so not just not protecting the victim, but there are I'll give you an example. A lot of times survivors have been assaulted or, you know, the, the trauma they've endured, the abuse that's happened has been through people that are close to them, could be in their family, friends of family, right? And so then that's really messy. And that's usually how it is, right? So, you know, yes, there's an aspect of, do I believe it's important to share your story? I do. But I do believe that you have to use wisdom in that and ask, you know, what is the, um, you know, what are the implications? Because every decision you make does come with a consequence. So um, when the Me Too movement happened, I, although I think it was amazing, just like what you're doing here, sharing stories, which is so powerful and it helps people to not feel alone. um, I do think that that's so, so important for people, but there's also this Me Too now what? Okay. Like what, like sitting in that space to me, is not a space I want to sit in. I don't ever want to leave somebody in the valley. Um, I want to bring people out of the valley. So um, a couple things that we've created for the nonprofit, one of them is called a seven days of hope challenge. It is stories from trauma survivors. Okay. Um, But it not only gives their personal story, it's really a testimonial of how they got through it. Okay. So how they went from, you know, being a victim to a victor in that situation, you know, what was the affirmations that helped them? What, you know, Bible verse did they have? What, um, you know, what, 
song did they listen to to help them? You know, just different, there's just different elements that are a part of that. And so anybody can really sign up for this and I'll share the information. You know, you can text, um, you know, to this number and you can actually receive it. And I always put a warning out there because not everybody is at a space where they are, they can, you know, not everybody has worked enough through their trauma where they can hear a trauma, trauma survivor, survivor story without being triggered. So there is like a trigger warning there that we have put on there to be like, listen, you have to be in a space where you can handle hearing other people's stories. Um, but also know that the goal is to let you know that you are not alone, that you are seen, you're known, you're loved, and that you can work through this and have that strength and community without having to go out and publicly share that. And I think that's really, really important that trauma survivors have anonymity um, and still can keep that because it's a, an individual journey for every single person. I am so happy that you brought up that boundary almost, right? That absolutely right that a lot of times it's a family member it's someone that people know like knows in their family um but even just the boundary that sharing your story doesn't have to mean putting every single thing out on the table and that's what it is it's like sharing the aspects and the lessons and the journey yeah but but with that not you know, putting people in uncomfortable situations. And even again, with the Me Too movement, there has just been a lot of talk that it's like, it's great because people are hearing their stories, but often we're talking about the problems and the issues, but not talking about the solutions. Exactly. So I love that you kind of bridge that gap that you're able to provide by simply texting a number ways to work through it and a community and even sharing your story, right? Like I'm an advocate for sharing stories, but with that, I'm not saying like make a whole Facebook post and shout it from the mountaintops. It's like utilizing your story almost and taking that power back that that's a tool that you can use to help someone else or to be that guiding light when someone's lost in the storm of their life. Absolutely. Um, actually, we at the end of the seven days of hope challenge for survivors, we actually give a um, survey at the end that allows you to share your story and testimonial, which could be a part of it. So I do think it's really important for a survivor's healing process to get it out, you know, to not keep that secret, right? Because we know secrets make us sick, right? And so getting that out in a way that's going to be healthy and helpful. Um, and we've also have, you know, I know you mentioned that I'm an author. It's not, it is still in publishing process right now, but um, I did write a trauma survivor workbook, which shares uh, personal stories of, of my life, right, that I've gone through as a survivor, um, but also has journal prompts and has, um, you know, art therapy aspect to it. And um, it goes through 12 biblical principles that can guide you through, you know, being from, you know, that broken place to getting to like the beautiful side of your life where you are working uh, through this. So that that is another tool that we have coming. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's definitely something therapeutic about sharing, um, but that can be just you on your own journaling. You know, it can be you sharing with one other person. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, every circumstance requires 
um, bringing somebody to court. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes yes. that that's actually results in a re-traumatization. Um, and I know for me, you know, personally, I, I've had a multiple, I've had some, I've had multiple experiences where I've, um, you know, been a victim of rape and molestation and, you know, one of them is passed away. So it's not even anything I could do. And another one, like I said, it's like, I got through the healing journey, the forgiveness journey, the place where I could actually have a relationship at, at a distance with this person, um, without having to drag their name in the mud. And, and that's been a really beautiful thing because I think the number one thing that I would say about being, um, you know, a victim of sexual abuse is, the anger that you hold and harbor um, actually makes you sicker. So, you know, getting to like let go of that anger is the most freeing experience, I think, that I want to pass on to every single survivor. You brought up so many incredible points, especially that it could only be one person. You know, you can only, you utilizing that and sharing that with one person, like imagine did you have that person in your life? Like when you started to share or when you were going through that, did you have any positive role models or guidance to look up to or someone who had been through a similar thing? And if not, what do you think that would have done having someone there or that story there to almost lean on? Well, so it's interesting you say that. Um, so a lot of my trauma didn't surface until I was in my late teens and this is really normal. So it's actually, it, so often people will be like, oh, now out of the blue years later, the survivor is just having memories of this and they can't prove it. Right. And there's all this like lawsuit stuff. And I think there's a lot of judgment societally around people being like, oh, how convenient that this person brings it up now. Right. But you have to understand that the brain is so powerful. Um, and, you know, I will share just a little piece, which, you know, just trigger warning, it, it may be hard to hear for some people. Um, but I was raped at a very young age, under the age of four years old. Um, I was left home. Um, I, my babysitter had kind of like a crisis happen and left me home with her father. And that's when it happened. And, you know, he had been an alcoholic. And so, you know, whatever, there's just, there's a lot of pieces to that. But what I want to tell you is that the brain of my brain went into a survival mode and protected me for many, many years from that. Um, and that's really normal. So, you know, I also stifled that with drugs and alcohol, right? As soon as I could get my hands on drugs and alcohol, when I was 12 years old, it was like, I was trying to numb and suppress all of this, you know, these feelings that I didn't know how to deal with, you know, so it took me years. And it, I think part of what actually made my trauma come to the surface was I had had, um, I had had, this is really random, but I had a jaw dislocation happen during um, getting my, my wisdom teeth removed. And so I had to start seeing, you know, a physical therapist and she did something called myofascial release. And I started seeing her for physical therapy. Um, but I really believe there's a mind body, you know, spiritual soul connection, right? Like the body keeps the score is a 
is a really popular book, you know, that trauma survivors know about, right? So there is something to the physical body. And I think it was during that work when I was physically sitting still and having to feel and start working through my anxiety that I started having um, some of my trauma resurface. Um, I, I did, um, I did bring up, I'll just put it this way. There, it's, it is important to consider who you are sharing with, right? Um, to make sure that they are somebody that, um, you know, is empathetic and able to listen without trying to fix or change um, or make it about them or like, there's all these things, right? So, you know, you got to, definitely make sure that you do have somebody that you feel like you can um, open up to. And I had started seeing a therapist, um, which was helpful as far as like, you know, the memories resurfacing and kind of understanding why I operated the way I did for the longest time, really coming um, to understand what PTSD was and how that, how I had all these like coping skills that weren't working for me anymore. Um, so a therapist, I definitely recommend, but I did have a best friend um, who is actually a therapist now. And she just held so much space for me, you know, to share and process things. And um, I'm so grateful for her because she she never judged me or looked at me different or, you know, tried to change me. You know, she just allowed me to cry and be angry and process what had happened. And that was really, really important for me. So I would say too, if you're a listener and you don't have a background with trauma, you know, the best thing you could possibly do is just practice empathetic listening and also encourage therapy. I really do think that that's um, helpful. You said 12, 12 or 13 is when you started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Do you want to go into yeah. that journey? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm really open about that. So I can remember, I remember in junior high, so we had just moved. My family was originally from Chicago. We moved to Colorado and so I was there fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Had like the best friends in the entire world, like loved my life, still can close my eyes. And it's like a happy bubble of my life, right? Um, but my brothers at that age were in high school and they were um, drinking and doing drugs. And it was a huge problem in our family. And you know, my parents dealt with it by like on the, they'd work all week and on the weekends, it was like, they'd grab me and we'd go into the mountains. And I think a lot of times they were avoiding my brothers would be throwing parties at the house when we were gone. I mean, it was wild. Um, but when we moved, we ended up moving back to Chicago for my dad's job. And so we were, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago and it was like this culture shock from being in this like safe space with friends that were, you know, just really, they were just good kids. You know, we were involved in sports and all the things to then going to this, you know, this kind of like suburban, suburban city kind of school. And there were like gangs and it was just really, I, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt like a fish out of water at that time. And um, I dealt with a lot of harassment, sexual harassment, bullying. I didn't have friends. You know, things were really hard at home because my brother had just gotten off of, you know, his drug addiction and my dad was commuting for work all the time. And so it was just a really hard time. And 
I remember coming home from school and just seeing Bombay Sapphire on the top of the fridge and just grabbing it and pouring myself a cup of gin and juice. Like that was just, I don't know what in me was like, that seems like a good idea right now, but man, did I need a drink really bad at 12 years old. So, you know, it, that's kind of how it started was like, I was seeking it and I loved the effect that alcohol had. I mean, it just made me go from being anxious about everything and all this overthinking in my mind to literally not a care in the world. Like I'd have a drink and it was like, everything was fine, you know? And so it really, for me, became something I would think about all the time. I was always seeking it. I mean, throughout high school, I would be hanging out with my friends, older brothers that were five, six years older, finding ways to go hang out with them, get alcohol from them. I mean, if there was a will, there was a way I was going to find a way to get my hands on alcohol. And I, I even remember like stealing my dad's vodka and then refilling it with water and just doing crazy stuff. I mean, this was my life. Um, for a really long time. And then it became normal, you know, later on in high school, college, like it was very acceptable. Um, I built my life around alcohol and drinking because that's what I cared about. And I was very high functioning alcoholic. So a lot of people had no idea I had a problem. Um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of negative external consequences. I, I didn't have DUIs. I didn't lose, you know, jobs over it. Like nothing happened, um, as a consequence of it externally, but emotionally I was in so much pain that by the age of 26 years old, um, at this point I had been, you know, in a career as a makeup artist for, oh my goodness, it had to be like seven years. I was working at the same salon. I got promoted. I was a top seller. I was a manager. I like had made it right. I was like, my career is taking off. Things look really good on the outside. I was living with a couple girlfriends and my boyfriend that we were in a really serious relationship. And there was like a six month period where it was kind of like I had the funnest night drinking ever, right? We had a kegger on St. Patty's day. It was a blast. And then every day from that moment on, every time I drank, I couldn't get that relief that alcohol used to give me. And it was the strangest thing. It was like, no matter how much I put in my body, it wouldn't do what I wanted it to do for me anymore. And I just started getting more anxious, more depressed, you know, having heart palpitations, having panic attacks, just, you know, constantly, you know, wanting it to be anything, but the alcohol, that was the problem because to be perfectly honest, alcohol had been kind of at this point, my best friend for most of my life. It was the thing that was always there for me. If I had a good day, if I had a bad day, whatever, it was like me and alcohol. That's, that was, we had like a relationship and my last night of drinking, it was at my husband, now husband, and I, but we, we had gone to a Cubs game in Ridleyville and we were like bar crawling on the way home. And meanwhile, looking back, it's funny. He, he would be like having two beers in the night and I'd be on like number 15 of drinks. And I had no idea, like in my head, he was keeping up with me, but he never was. So, so I think he had just had enough. He had gotten a new job. He had to get up early. And he said, 
I'm going home. And I, I was like, my famous last words were always just one more. Like he would tell me that forever. He's like, uh-huh, just one more. You said just one more three hours ago. And so I was like, just one more though, just one more. And he left. And I thought he was calling my, like, I was like, I'm going to call his bluff. Like he would do this sometimes, like say he's leaving, but he'd be waiting in the parking lot. Um, but that night he left. And I remember going back into the bar and I took a quarter and I just started flicking it behind the bar and any alcohol bottle that it hit, I would do a shot of, I mean, just shot after shot. It was like, I just, I drank so much. It's, it's insane. Like I, I, I would surely die today if I had drank what I did that night. Um, and I remember the karaoke guy that was there because I would go all the time. He knew me and my boyfriend, right? And he walked me home and he was like, I'm going to buzz every apartment door if you don't go inside because I still wanted to keep drinking and going out. And in Chicago, it's kind of like New York City. Like you could be out till four in the morning, no problem. Um, so I woke up with neighbors walking over me. I had just passed out in the hallway. And so I was like right at top of the stairs. People were climbing over me. I ended up going in to my apartment, was hugging the bathroom toilet, threw up all over the carpet. And this became a little bit normal, the throwing up part. But I just felt such... I felt so demoralized. I felt so much shame. I was so embarrassed. I, I couldn't understand how I ended up here again. And I remember looking in the mirror and not even recognizing myself and really believing like, if I keep living like this, I'm going to die. Um, and it was this kind of fork in the road where it was like, I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die. And so I just got on my knees and I prayed and I said, you know, God, do you exist? That was it. I like, I really didn't know at this point. I said, God, do you exist? And I heard like this internal voice literally came in and said, yes. And I said, help me. That was it. I still get goosebumps. And I just said, help me. And it was like, all of a sudden it came to mind that there had been a client. I did makeup. Like I said, I did lash extensions and there was a client that I did lash extensions for that for like the last six months, I guess I had been talking to her about my drinking because she said, if you ever want to, you talk to me a lot about wanting to not drink anymore. Um, if you're ever serious about it, give me a call. And she'd given me her business card. And so this came to mind. I called her. She took me to my first AA meeting and that was October 17th, 2012. And I haven't had a drink since. So this year I'm coming up on 10 years and that's really, you know, my, my love affair with alcohol and, you know, that moment of desperation and humility of having to like seek for a God to, you know, save me because I knew I couldn't go a day without drinking at this point. To wrap it up, if there's one thing that you wish sharing this story, what, what impact would you want this to have? Honestly, I, I just really want people to know that their identity isn't found in a career. It's not found in how you look. It's not found in a relationship. Like your identity is just being a child of God, period. Like that's it. You know, like you are 
enough because you were created by somebody who loves you and sees you and is longing for you to come to know him. And so like, that is like my ultimate message that I want other people to know. Um, because having that relationship and searching for that and finding that and, and my relationship with Jesus completely changed my life forever. Like it didn't all just happen. Like, oh, I went to church one day and whatever. It was like, he came to me, you know what I mean? Like I heard, I prayed and I heard that. Yes. And, you know, I really do believe there's, you know, this one verse that says, um, seek, ask, knock, and the door will open. And I just really believe that to be true, that if you are seeking that relationship with God, that he'll reveal himself to you. And, um, I'm just, I'm just forever grateful for knowing that because when you start to, you know, develop a relationship with like a real actual relationship, not religion, I'm talking about a real relationship with a God, you know, with God of your understanding, right? You, you suddenly don't need, you don't need all this other stuff, right? You don't, you just realize that you are capable you're enough you you know what I mean like you don't need anything else you know to influence your decisions and it's very empowering as well right it's there's no better feeling than having like that self-acceptance and saying like this is who I am (laughs) you know it's messy I'm a sinner like every other person but I can be okay with that because there's a greater purpose for my life right Right, Alina. I just thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're so welcome. Beautiful. I am so thankful that you had me on here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the share your story podcast with your host, Megan McGowan. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. This helps others find the show and we really appreciate it. Once again, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode of the Share Your Story podcast.